0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful so much that we can be here tonight just to study your word, to have our minds cleansed and refreshed at the end of the day toward the end of the week, that we can focus upon that which has eternal value and eternal significance, that we can be reminded of the great salvation that you have given us, and that we may come to clearly understand more about that salvation and the the depths and breadth of that salvation and clarity of the gospel. So, Father, we pray that we might uh, be able to think clearly tonight as we go through several Uh, introductory overview matters in terms of the next section, the next few verses in Philippians. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, this is Thursday night, so I guess there's a Thursday night crowd and a Tuesday night crowd, but you're mostly the same, but I said this on on Tuesday night. um, I'm still kind of processing material for the uh, encounter event from last week, but either in two or three weeks from now, I want to do a presentation on that, and I want to make sure I can pull together the the photos and a couple of short videos and go through my notes pretty well and um, and then we'll we'll go over that. so I, I think it's very important for us to understand that different different groups, different cultures here, need to have the gospel presented in different packages, so to speak. We always have to be sensitive. If you're if you go to a mission, if you're a missionary, and you're going to go as a missionary to some uh, Aboriginal tribe in South America, like we have a couple of missionaries on our prayer list that are down in uh, the Amazon Basin working with the uh, with the ver- various almost Stone Age tribes. You have to learn that culture, and you have to learn what the nuances are and where where the things are that you shouldn't say and things you can say and things that will be easily misunderstood so that you don't basically uh, create your own problems. And that's true in any culture. Even even the culture we have in America, we have to understand it so we can understand uh, how to best present the gospel to where somebody is. And we see Jesus doing that. He didn't uh, t- uh, give the gospel the same way to everybody. Uh, he he nuanced it for where that person was. And the Jewish community, the one thing that I, I, I've known this, but, I, but it, it would really impressed me more as we spend a lot of time in Jewish communities and talking about this, is that the heritage of Christian anti-Semitism is so heavily laid on the Jewish com- community that when they think of a Christian, they think Adolf Hitler was a Christian because they don't understand any more than you understand the differences between Reconstructionist Jews, Reform Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, or Haredim Jews. You can't give me a definition of those different belief systems within Judaism. Well, they don't understand any of the differences between the Protestant groups or the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And so for them, you're either a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim, period. That's it. And so it's important to recognize that, that when we talk about things that are familiar to us, they are not at all familiar to them. And there's, in certain areas of the Jewish community, there's a tremendous amount of suspicion about why do these evangelicals claim to love us? I mean, they Christians have been burning us at the stake and, and annihilating us left and right for the last 2,000 years. What's with this? And there's a rumor that we ran into on my very first trip to Israel, and that is that the only reason uh, evangelicals support the Jewish return to Israel is so they can get all the Jews into Israel, and then um, there's going to be this huge war and all the Jews are going to be killed, and then Jesus is going to come back. And there are Jews who believe that, okay? So we have to understand that, where they're coming from. So a lot of times, what's most important, I have one dear Jewish friend who told me one time, if I ever get the idea that the reason you're my friend is so that I will become a Christian, that'll be the end of our friendship. And too many Christians, and I've had at least two people I know of in this congregation that no matter how much I Say from this pulpit that you do not go to somebody you do not know that 's Jewish and start giving them the gospel. that is the worst thing you can do. You have to build a relationship first, and it 's got to be done and any witnessing has got to be done within the context of that relationship because most of the time that you go give the gospel to somebody that 's Jewish, they probably can give it back to you better than you can it 's not that they don 't know it. They they see Christians as those who have historically hated them and persecuted them, and we got to get past that. So that's important. That was one of one of my that wasn't a anything new to me, but it just was reinforced on this on, on this last trip. So anyway, just to say that. So I want to do a whole presentation on this because I think it's important that this church has this on the website so that people who are involved in Jews, and a lot of people aren't. That one of, There are four of us that have been good friends since we were at Yad Vashem. One of these guys lives in Montana. There are more cows in Montana than there are Jews. The nearest synagogue to where he lives is like 250 or 300 miles away. He drives 200 miles each way to go to his church to preach every Sunday. There's a lot of wide-open spaces up there in Montana. And so there's, there's a lot of people who are like that. They just don't. I mean, there were periods in my life when I didn't know anyone or was not in contact with anyone that was Jewish. And then there are periods of my life when I'm surrounded by them. So it just depends on where you are, what's going on. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. And we're not going to get very far because what I want to do this evening is just look at a, a little introduction to this next section. And this is important because we're going to come to the third use of the word salvation in Philippians. And there's a lot of confusion about the word salvation. What is salvation? What does that mean in a lot of context? In the Old Testament, I have heard one scholar make the comment that he has examined every use of the Hebrew word yasha. Which is, where we, from, which is the word from whence we get the name Jesus, Yeshua. And he says that it's never used for getting saved from the lake of fire in the whole book of Psalms. I think there's two or three possible exceptions, but the vast majority of them are talking about a physical deliverance from a current dilemma or adversity or problem. And so we often overlook that. We have a tendency, we see the word salvation. It's a knee-jerk response. This is talking about how to get to heaven when we die. And that's not true. There are a lot of shades of of uh, information. So the verse, the first couple of verses that we see here following our study in 5 to 11, which is focusing on humility, we see a therefore... And I always remind you that we have to see why it's there. What is it there for? It is drawing a conclusion from that which precedes it. So you can't understand 12 through 18 if we don't connect it contextually to verses 5 through 11, and that's the illustration of the commands in 1 through 4. And 1 through 4 comes it begins with a What? Look at that first word in verse 1. Therefore. What's it there for? It's drawing a conclusion from verses 27 to 30. And the way I stru- saw that this was structured at the beginning, the introduction to the letter begins in 1-1 and goes down to 126. And then starting in verse 27 uh, to approximately the end of, let me see, about 4.9. What we see is the main body of this letter, this main body of epistle. And we've seen that, that this is all about a thank you note to the Philippians because they are graciously participating in Paul's ministry. And that must be understood. So he's talking to them as believers, believers who have a problem because there's some dis- dissension and there's a, a bit of lack of unity in the body. And so he's encouraging them to come together to be more effective by being unified. That's the first four verses of this section. And he gives the illustration of this kind of uh, humility in verses 5 through 11. You have to have biblical humility in order to have unity. And when you're concerned about serving yourself and getting the recognition for what you're doing, then that's just going to cause problems. So you have to learn to submit to and be obedient to to the Father. Now that we have heard about this unity, that it comes through humility, humility is uh, illustrated by what Christ did when he willingly limited the use of his divine prerogatives In order to enter into human history to add to himself uh, true humanity, so that he could go to the cross, submit to the obedience of the Father, go to the cross, and die for our sins. Having understood that, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, in other words, you didn't just obey when I was there and then you did whatever you wanted when I left. But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this is a problem because you have the word work there and salvation. So people think of salvation when they come to this passage is talking about fate, what we would refer to as phase one, stage one salvation, justification, and it has to be worked out. So this works right there. And then uh, Paul goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So it sounds there as if this is just you have to learn to just let go and let God. That was a very popular phrase. You may have heard it. It's still around, but it comes out of the Keswick movement. And it's really a, a pacifism uh, in the, in the spiritual life that, A lot of people got very discouraged because that really didn't seem to work for them. So what I wanna talk about is just this question, what is the role of our works in our eternal salvation? What's the role of works in God's plan for for the individual believer? But we have to be more specific and say, what is or is there a role for works in our eternal salvation. Now, in the history of Christianity, there have been a large number of Christians and a vast number of denominations, some of which you may have been a part of at one point in your life, that emphasize the importance of works in order to be saved. They had a faith plus concept of salvation. And so I would call that. Uh, The overt error, adding works at the front end, at the front door of the gospel. And so some examples of this would be the idea of faith plus baptism. You see this in churches of Christ. They believe in baptismal regeneration. That's the technical term for it. You are regenerated by baptism. So if you just believe in Christ, it isn't enough. You have to believe and be baptized. It's faith plus works. And so it could be immersion. It could be a sprinkling. There are some groups like the Dunkards that split over the method. And you have three times forward dunkers and three times backward dunkers. And so you have to do it. Dunk them once for the father, once for the son and once for the Holy Spirit. And um, so they split over that. But it's, it, it boils down to legalism, and let me tell you, after going to uh, a couple of yeshivas up in New York last week and seeing the incredible effort and energy that, it, that these men are putting into getting to heaven, I'd be going to hell in a heartbeat. I couldn't put forth that much effort. I mean, the diligence, the dedication, the commitment is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's all worthless. It's all dead works. We have faith plus giving. You have to, you know, give money, and your support of the local church is very much part of being saved. Or faith plus a public confession of sin. That's Romans 10, 8, and 9, where it says if we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. See, that that's a lordship salvation emphasis there. Um, then, then we're saved. So you have to not only believe it, but you have to tell somebody. Really? Did God invent the two-step? Now, if you're not from Texas, you don't understand that, but the big dance in country dancing in Texas is the two-step, so. No, there's not, and I think I've got a paper on that up on the DBM website on Romans 10, 8, 9. When you examine the context, that chapter is about 80% quotes from the Old Testament, And it's all related to uh, Israel calling out to the Messiah uh, at the end of the tribulation to come and deliver them. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and the next verse goes on to talk about them calling out for the Messiah to come and deliver them. That's what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with our uh, personal regeneration. Uh, Faith plus joining a specific denomination and church. And you'll see this in some denominations where you, you may have been a member at first or second or 15th church, but if you're going to come to our church, you're going to have to be a member of our church, and you're probably not saved if you're not a member of our church. And you have denominations that are that way, that if you're not part of our denomination, then then you're probably not saved. <clears throat> Faith plus commitment. In fact, we're going to talk a good deal this evening about lordship salvation, And that's how they understand faith. Faith means commitment. No, it doesn't. Faith means to trust. It doesn't mean to commit your life to something. That's a totally different concept and totally different word group. Then we have the error of adding works at the back door. Adding works at the back door. And this is referred to as lordship salvation. Now, I realize that I use this term a lot, assuming most people know what it means, and so I want to define it for you because a lot of people have a regular sort of a nebulous idea. It gets called lordship salvation in part because of what is said in Romans 10, 8, 9. If you believe in your heart, Um, that Jesus, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, you have to make a commitment to obedience to the Lord in order to be saved. And you have to make the Lord Lord of your life. That was a little catchphrase that was often used, and I've heard it uh, some, like back in the 60s and 70s, and that that's where it got the name Lordship Salvation. But it really has the it really, the more technically correct name is to call it perseverance salvation, and that we'll look at this in just a minute. That comes out of Calvinism, and it's the P in tulip, the acronym that describes the five points of Calvinism. That if you have true, genuine faith, if you're that if you're going to be believe and have salvation, that it involves a commitment to obedience to the Lord in order to be truly saved. So uh, on the bright side, what they're just trying to emphasize is that people need to be more committed to learning the Word. But that's not what faith means. Faith means just trusting in Christ. So Lordship, salvation... Uh, believes that a believer with genuine saving faith, so they would distinguish between the kind of faith that saves and the kind of faith you exercise when you sat down in your chair, believing that the chair you're sitting in would hold you up. But faith is faith. Faith is does not come in categories. But they they would say that because you're spiritually dead, you can't exercise faith, and so God must regenerate you first and give you faith, the kind of faith that can save. So they see saving faith as something that is categorically and qualitatively different than the kind of faith we exercise hundreds of times every single day. So they would say that a believer with genuine saving faith will persevere to the end. They may be, they may have uh, periods of sinful rebellion, but the true believer will persevere. And about 15 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, I think it was up in Connecticut at the time, a well-known pastor, well-known Calvinistic uh, Presbyterian pastor, whose pastor, I think he was pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, was a man named James Montgomery Boyce. And he was uh, about to go to be with the Lord. And at the same time, another very strong Calvinistic reformed, I'm I'm uh, repeating myself, um, it, a Bible teacher named R.C. Sproul was having one of his Ligonier, that's what he called his conferences, was having one of his Ligonier conferences and he said Doctor, Dr. Boyce is about to die we need to pray that he will not fall away in these last moments but will persevere to the end and then we'll know he's saved this is the same kind of thing you've heard me say before that uh, John MacArthur is well known for having a lordship gospel. He's written books called The Gospel According to Jesus and The Gospel According to Paul and a couple of other books. There are a lot of things that Dr. MacArthur teaches that I appreciate and that, I, uh, I, that we would all agree with. And he's a good Bible teacher until he gets to this area of soteriology. But uh, when he first came out with his book, Uh, the gospel according to Jesus. He was at at that year, the uh, Christian booksellers convention was in Dallas. And so he was in Dallas for the Christian booksellers convention. I think that same year, Tommy Eisen, Wayne House came out with a book on dominion theology, blessing or curse. And so Tommy was up and the owner of the rather large Christian bookstore in Irving, Texas, had a uh, pat would have these pastors meetings three or four times a year and have a speaker and invite all the pastors in the area. So there was a good crowd cuz MacArthur was going to talk about his new book and Tommy and I were just sitting on the floor just just on the other, just barely inside the sneeze sneeze uh, window there. And when he got done talking about it, I asked him, I said, "Well, Dr. MacArthur, How sure are you that you're saved? He said, 97, 98% sure. Because you see, in perseverance salvation, in lordship salvation, your assurance of salvation comes from your ability to observe the works that God has done in your life. Do you have works, fruit, you know, do you have fruit uh, that is in keeping with repentance? That is the way they would take that. The context of that particular statement in the Gospels is what the Pharisees taught and what didn't have anything to do with with salvation. So they would say that there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. So they're going to interpret uh, 1 Corinthians 3 in a completely different way. And one of the things I noticed as I've been going through the... um, the material that Amos and Jen Quak have written on sanctification—that based on what I'm teaching—that's why they want me involved—is they use that new Living Translation, and I was working through uh, the second lesson, and were—I was making all kinds of corrections, and—and and they don't know Greek or Hebrew, and they are use this new Living Translation, which is pretty good in some of the Old Testament books. But I looked to see, looked in the forward of the book where it lists all of the translators for each of the epistles, and there were maybe a half a dozen whose names I was not familiar with, but everybody else was strong lordship, very strong lordship and When you got to various passages, they seriously mistranslated them because they were translating them more more it's kind of a almost a translation it's between a translation and a paraphrase but they were interpreting it within their their perseverance grid second thing about lordship salvation is that we could define it as the view that saving faith involves a commitment to obedience to the lord as part of genuine salvation they would define faith as you're committing your your life to uh, sub- submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's five points. I meant to put those them one at a time. Here's five points on Lordship salvation, just to summarize it. Number one, while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. That's, that's a little Reformed catchphrase, and it's real tricky it, uh, one one um, free grace guy has called it the uh, the lordship cliche. Uh, while we are saved by faith alone, if it, what they mean is that if it's real genuine saving faith, then that is always accompanied by good works. And so those good works are necessary so that you know that whether or not you're saved. Second, they interpret saving faith to be a gift from God. Now, we've looked at that. We'll look at it again tonight in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that you can't get that out of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So saving faith is seen as a special category of faith that is given to the elect. Third, the one with genuine saving faith will ultimately produce fruit which validates that faith as the evidence of true salvation. Where do we get assurance of salvation? We get it from the promise of God. God is the one who keeps us over and over again in assurance of salvation verses. It's God who keeps us. God who it is. And see, this is a difference with Lewis Berry Chafer because Chafer was a moderate Calvinist. But when he defined perseverance, he defined it as the perseverance of Christ in keeping us. That's not historic, a historic Calvinistic definition of perseverance. So he, he changed the definition. He made it eternal security and not, um, not into uh, sort of the uh, evidence of salvation fourth we often hear statements like and you hear this how many times and maybe you said it how many times have you looked at a person oh let me just say bill clinton and you've looked at a person like bill clinton and all of his shenanigans and everything you say how could he be a christian how can he be saved well he he went to first baptist church of little rock when he was governor and he, you know, he had nefarious motives because he stood in the choir behind the pastor, who was listening to Pastor Theme regularly, and told this story to Pastor Theme. But you know, when he was preaching and the cameras on him, Bill Clinton, the governor, is right behind him, so he's using it for political purposes. But the pastor of that church, whose name escapes me right now, was convinced. He said he's saved. I don't know about his wife, but he is clearly saved. He understands and believes the gospel. But a lot of people say, well, look at the sin in his life. Well, the people who do that tend to forget that when they said that they were judging, they were sinning. They forget all of the mental attitude sins that you see in a lot of judgmental people and in a lot of legalists and the mental attitude sins, they put all the emphasis on, well, look, they're doing this and doing this and doing this. They put the emphasis on the overt sins. Say, see, how can they be a believer? Well, how can you be a believer? You're as arrogant as you can be. You're as judgmental as you can be. You you think you know more than anybody else, and you don't have a clue about grace. So we need to be careful because if you say, well, just because so-and-so can't get a control of certain areas of their life that that means that they're not really saved you're you've got a lordship concept in there that is that's very distressing and fifth spiritual growth this is the key thing spiritual growth for them is inextricably and necessarily connected to justification salvation And those saved will inevitably produce fruit to demonstrate their salvation. That's the issue. In Roman Catholic theology, justification is a process. And so is sanctification. And the only way you know you're just, and you don't know if you're justified because you don't know how much good works are enough to be saved And so it's they're both linear. At the Reformation, there was a recognition by some of them early on that justification took place at a point in time and sanctification was not inextricably linked to justification. But then when they got a lot of Feedback from Roman Catholics who said, well, if all they have to do is believe Christ died for their sins and they're going to go to heaven, then what's going to keep them obedient? What's going to keep them in the word? And they went, well, so they backed up a little bit and they went to this perseverance idea. Now, just to remind you, We understand that there are three phases or three stages to salvation. Phase one, we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And by trusting in him and him alone, we have everlasting life. We are justified in God's eyes because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. That is justification That is distinct from phase two, which is sanctification or spiritual growth or spiritual life as our life as we grow spiritually and our life is being set apart to the Lord. And then there's phase three, which is our glorification when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. And the word saved or salvation is applied to each one of these individually. So that you, we talk about the fact that uh, Paul uses it this way in Acts sixteen thirty one: Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That is, he's talking about phase one. You will be saved from the penalty of sin. You will you are rescued from the lake of fire. You were saved. But then we're saved also from the power of sin. This is phase two. This is related to sanctification. We are saved, and it's a process. We are continually being saved. Dr. Rodmacher used to say, I was saved yesterday, I'm being saved today, and I'll be saved tomorrow, as he was emphasizing this. It, the word saved is used uh, to talk about the spiritual growth. And then at the end, we are saved from the presence of sin that you will be be saved. And you see this in Romans, Romans chapter 5. I'll just turn there quickly. Romans chapter 5. Direct your attention to... Oh, well, I can't find it right now. See, that's what happened when that guy stole my Bible a couple of years ago. I just don't get back here. Oh, I have all these verses. Oh, verse 9, Romans 5, 9. Much more than, let's go to verse 8. We're familiar with that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. What tense is that? Past. We have now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved. What's that? Future tense. See, that's not talking, that's using the word saved to refer to glorification. We will be saved from from wrath through him. So as we look at this view of lordship salvation, we have to understand that this comes out of reformed theology. Reformed theology is the theology that traces its roots back to Calvin, to Zwingli, Who's Calvin is in Geneva, and he's the leader of the French-Swiss Reformation. You know, in, in Geneva, they speak French. Uh, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, was the pastor in, uh, in, in, uh, Zurich. And he, Gross, Gross, is it Grossmünster? Is that the church? I think so. Uh, was a pastor. Anyway, he, that's, he's the head of the German Swiss Reformation. John Knox is the head of the Scottish Reformation, Scottish Reformed Church. And so Reformed theology is at the core of Uh, Puritans, the Puritanism, uh, at the core of Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, and various other Reformed groups, including Reformed Baptists. They all hold to this perseverance uh, theology. So at the core is this extreme emphasis on the inability of man to even exercise positive volition. Man can't do anything It is only God who saves them. So this is known by the acronym TULIP. You know, we have two kinds of flowers in theology. TULIP is the Calvinist flower and a daisy is the Arminian uh, flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. There's no certainty or assurance there at all. But in TULIP, the T stands for total inability. Now, sometimes you'll read it, but it it stands for total depravity, but there's a difference. In total depravity, it just means all that we are is corrupted by sin. Total inability means that man can't do anything, even exercise positive volition toward God. Everything is on God's initiative. So that is total inability. No human being can do anything or desire anything good. The U stands for unconditional election, and that means in eternity past, God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved, and it is not related to his foreknowledge. The way they define foreknowledge is God can't know that something will happen unless he has already determined that it will happen. It's determinism. The L stands for limited atonement. Christ died only for the elect. So logically, this system is consistent. Irresistible grace means God the Holy Spirit will irresistibly draw the elect to the cross and they cannot say no. It's irresistible. And he only draws the elect. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly elect and have received the gift of faith will evidence that through their works. So that's the system. And that's how you end up with lordship salvation. Now, some people say, and a lot of Calvinists will say this, well, if you don't believe that, then you're an Arminian. No, you're not. There's not a single point in the uh, remonstrance. That's what the term was used to describe the five points of our means. They were the first ones to set forth these five points, and then there was the counter from the Calvinists. So originally it was the remonstrance, and the tulip was the counter to their remonstrance. But there's not one thing there that I would agree with either. Neither are are consistent exegetically. There are lots of holes. So let's summarize Lordship Salvation, and I misspelled it. There are two types of faith in Christ, a faith in Christ that saves and one that doesn't save. This this is exactly what uh, John MacArthur has in his gospel according to Jesus. They base this on John 2.23. This is when Jesus first goes to Jerusalem for his first Passover after he has been baptized by John the Baptist. And in John 2.23 we read... Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, so when is Passover? It's in the spring, so this is sometime in April. Uh, during the feast, what does it say? Many believed in his name. Now, the preposition in the Greek that is translated in is the preposition eis, E-I-S. All of these verses I'm going to show you, that's the, that's the preposition that's used. The verb is the same it's pistuo. Pastuo is used over 95 times in the New Testament, in John, in the Gospel of John. It's never qualified. It never says genuinely believe, truly believe, um, sincerely believe, ne- never says any of those things. So it makes this statement. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, now remember, this is at the end of John chapter 2. So I'm going to go back to some verses that precede this in John chapter 1. But we've got to see this first. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit. That's how it's translated in the New King James. But it's the same verb, pistuo, And it is <clears throat> it means to entrust. He's not going to entrust himself to these baby believers. And so what happens is they say, see, if, if, if they were genuine believers then Jesus would trust himself to them. Well, wait a minute. If you, believe, if you believe that about newborn baby believers, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn. I'll be glad to sell you. Because just because somebody's a, a believer in Christ doesn't mean they're trustworthy. Because you don't know if they're mature, you don't know if they've ever learned anything, or they're still living like they did before they were saved. They used to have this thing called the Christian Yellow Pages. And people thought, well, if I'm going to go get a fine Christian mechanic to work on my car. I'm going to go find a good Christian cardiologist. Well, that good Christian cardiologist may have graduated at the bottom of his class. I don't care where my cardiologist is going to spend eternity in one sense or where my mechanic is going to spend eternity. I just want the best cardiologist and the best car mechanic I can find to fix my car. And see, a lot of people just think so superficially, oh, they're a Christian, so they must be good. No, that's not true. And Jesus knew that. He knew what was in their heart. He did not commit or entrust himself to them because he knew all men. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. In verse 25, we read, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. See, they still had the view that the crown came before the cross and so they had a political agenda instead of a suffering Messiah agenda. If we go back to the first part of the gospel in John 1, 12, we read, but as many as received him, the verse before says he came into his own and his own, that is the Jewish people, received him not. Now, there were a lot that did, but the, for the whole, they did not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, that is the exact same phrase as we have here in John 2.23, that many believed in his name. So it's identical. So that phrase indicates the condition for salvation. In John 2.11, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, after the changing of the water into wine at Cana, at the wedding uh, reception, the, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Same thing. Pistuo ace. John 3, 18. He who believes in him. Pistuo ace. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not pistu oase, does not believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3:36. He who believes in the Son, same language, same verb, same preposition. The object is either in the Son or in the name or in Jesus. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. John 4:39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. They believed in him. John 6:35. Believe in me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 11:25 and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The issue is faith alone. John twenty twenty nine, Jesus said Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet have believed. Now this is you have to understand the context for John twenty thirty one. Then the then Jesus then the next verse, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book but these these what what's he talking about he's talking about the signs these signs are written that you might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you will have life in his name now if we were to go back to john chapter 2 And read verse 23 again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem and at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. According to John, in John 2, 23 and in John 20, 31, signs are important to give evidence of who Jesus is so people can believe in him. John MacArthur wrote in the gospel, according to Jesus, that Faith based on miracles is a weak faith. What? No. The gospel, John says, we need to believe on the basis of evidence. We don't just park our brains in neutral and believe it without evidence. Then we come to Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So if I were to, you were to ask me, how do I get out of the, this church? And I said, well, you go through that door. Your goal is to exit out the front door. But you have to do it by going through that door. That, you go through faith to get to the destination of salvation. So salvation, regeneration, is not does not precede faith. See, earlier in John 2, 4 through 6... Paul has already defined the faith, for we have, been, um, uh, we have been made alive through him. By grace, you have been saved through faith. What did he say? By grace, we have been made alive in him. What does that mean? That's regeneration. We've been made alive in him. By grace, you have been saved. See, salvation is used in this context as a synonym for regeneration, and regeneration is important. So it's not of works lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So works are not part of the package, front door, back door, middle door. They're not there. It's not by works of righteousness. We go to Romans 4, 2 through 5. For if this is the illustration from the Old Testament of justification... Or If Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. Now, he's countering the Jewish argument of the Judaizers that you needed to be circumcised following the law in order to be saved. There's only one problem. Abraham lived 400 years before the law. He was not circumcised because that wasn't... I mean, he was circumcised, but that wasn't part of the law. The law was not... he wasn't under the law. He was apart from that. So if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It wasn't related, and that happened in Genesis 15:6. and God doesn't have him get circumcised until you get to chapter uh, uh, 16, 17, rather. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but it's debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It's a faith in the promise of God. Now, this is an important passage, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul is really reaming out the Galatians. He doesn't start off with, I thank God for every remembrance of you. He just skips past all the niceties and he just goes right for their juggler because they are so out of line. He says, I am amazed that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or corrupt the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's strong language. And verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So in this first verse, when it talks about a different gospel, this uses the word heteros, which means different, a different in kind. It's like heterosexual. You yeah, have men are different from women, okay? It indicates a contrast of quality or diversity. And so it's something different. It is not the same. In Galatians 1.7, Paul says, it's not another. Here uses the word alas which means something similar of the same kind. He says, I'm going to send another comforter to you, not a comforter that's different, heteros, but of the same kind, like him. In other words, divine. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, what we're seeing today is this perversion of corruption of the gospel of Christ. Lordship salvation is a perversion of the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1.8. I'll just read my translation because it, when it says, but even if here it is a um, second class condition. So it's assuming that it's not true and that it wouldn't happen. But even if we are an angel from heaven preaching any other gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Actually, it's saying if, and it's assumed not to be true, it's just hypothetical, we are an angel from heaven proclaim good news different from the good news we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. So they had a false gospel. And we have said before in verse 9, as we already said before, now again, I say if, this is a third-class condition, if, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't, Uh, If anyone proclaims a good news to you different uh, from what you all received, let him be accursed. Now, there's not a word different in the original there, but that's the sense. It's indicating a comparison and a distinction. That's lordship salvation. Now, free grace basically teaches faith alone in Christ alone. Yesterday, I received in the mail my... Grace in Focus magazine from Grace Evangelical Society. And the opening article, and I think I can do this. I'm going to stop here. Oh, I didn't. Let me get back over here. I didn't open this earlier, but it should open to that page. Maybe not. Let me look at this real quick to pull this up. No, I'm not going to take the time to find it. But they had they came out with a journal, and the cover article that they have is really outstanding. It's on hyperdispensationalism. But the first article, the first article I had real problems with, and it was very interesting because it's one of the few times I have seen them Uh, clearly, clearly state this. This is in the uh, October, September, October 2023, Grace in Focus magazine. And it's the first article in there written by Ken Yates. Okay, and it's called Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And then he asks, is that a saving message? There we go. Now, This is what what is really clear. He says, Jesus certainly died on the cross for the sins of the world. When we believe in him for eternal life, that's their key phrase, that the gospel is believing in Jesus for eternal life, period. And I'll show you what the problem is. When we believe in him for eternal life, we also receive the forgiveness of sins. But here at GES, we are clear in proclaiming that one must specifically believe that Jesus gives eternal life. Believing in the forgiveness of sins is not the same thing. Now... As a caveat, I want to say that I appreciate a lot of things that GES has done in a lot of ways. They helped clarify the gospel in the battle against lordship salvation in ways that that we really needed. Uh, Grace Evangelical Society was founded in the 80s by Zane Hodges, who was my first-year Greek professor, and Bob Wilkin, who was a colleague as a student at seminary. And I have a lot of appreciation for Bob. Uh, I disagree with him on this. This led to a huge split in the grace movement. Uh, It led to uh, three of the four elders at the church George Meisinger founded said this was the true gospel. George said, no, it's not. They fired him. To fire a man who founded a, that's his church, is the height of arrogance now, many years later and before he died, two of the three men sought, him out, sought George out and asked his forgiveness. They said, we handled that in a completely wrong way. Uh, the, fo- the third man did not get a chance. to. He believed that, and I give him credit for that. He, was, he, he realized that, but he was unable to talk to George before George went to be with the Lord. But recently, we I had uh, Bob Wilkin speak to our Friday morning pastors, my Friday morning pastors group, because when we were studying this book by Wayne Grudem, that was called Five Ways the Free Grace Gospel Diminishes the Gospel," they were all were everything was misrepresented by Grudem, even though he had a man named Fred Che who is a colleague on this on the faculty at Phoenix Seminary, and who read his drafts and corrected him on many things, Grudem never, never corrected anything on the basis of that, that insight. And so Bob Wilkin wrote a book called Grudem Against Grace, and it's very well done, and it's a good refutation of what Wayne Grudem said. And so I had, I tried to keep the communication doors open with these guys because it doesn't do any good to just, you know, call them names or anything like that. Uh, but but I do believe that they are wrong, and it caused a split in in the Grace movement, called a split at for Seminary. It caused a lot of problems around 2006 2007. One of the reasons that we left Southern California and went to Albuquerque at that time. Now a lot of people just don't know this. That's the dirty laundry that happened there, and it was it was bitter and and it was horrible. But that's what happens sometimes. Now in his opening, Ken Yates says this. I want to read this to you. It's a time for for another test like we had last week. He says, I conducted a very unscientific survey. What I found is that the most popular way of presenting the gospel today is for the speaker to tell unbelievers that Jesus will forgive them of their sins if they believe in him. We find this gospel presentation in numerous tracts and sermons and even on billboards along the highway. Such a presentation is given in various ways. Often the preacher will use 1 Corinthians 15:3, which says that Jesus died for our sins. If we believe he died for our sins, then we also realize that when we believe, he forgives us of those sins. The evangelist might say that when we believe, our sins are washed away and we become white as snow. Jesus certainly died on the cross for the sins of the world. That's the context of the quote. This is the quote that I had earlier. Jesus certainly died on the cross for the sins of the world. When we believe in him for eternal life, we also receive the forgiveness of sins. But here at GES, we are clear in proclaiming that one must specifically believe that Jesus gives eternal life. Now, there are many facets. We've gone through the sin barrier. There are many facets to sin, to the consequences of sin in many facets to the cross. You can believe that Christ died to reconcile us to God. You can believe God, Christ redeemed us. He paid the penalty for our sin. You can believe that we are forgiven. All of these are different facets. You can believe that God, Christ will give you eternal life, but they're just looking at different facets of the work of Christ on the cross. You cannot say that one is one is over all of the others. And if you believe Christ for redemption, if you believe Christ for forgiveness, if you believe Christ for reconciliation with God because of what he did on the cross, you can't say that, well, you're not going to heaven. But that's what they say. And that's very clear. George Meisinger loved to... He turned these verses into a sledgehammer and beat them over the head with it. I... It's 38 and 39, but I want you to hear the context. Paul is preaching, and he gives a gospel about Christ. He, God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. And he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say, He proclaimed to you eternal life. Paul says, He proclaimed to them the forgiveness of sins, and by Him, everyone who believes is justified. Believes what? Believes in Christ for forgiveness of sins. That These verses are not mentioned in this man's article. If you believe in Christ for justification, you believe in Christ for expiation, you believe in Christ for reconciliation, you believe in Christ for forgiveness of sins, however somebody presented it to you, all of those different facets of the work of Christ on the cross are tied together, and you're going to go to heaven forever and ever. Not according to GES. Ephesians 1, seven says, In him we have redemption through his, the blood, through the death, the forgiveness of sins. See, the word redemption always means to pay the price for something. But the word forgiveness has to do with canceling a debt. You canceled the debt because you have paid the price. So you're believing that Jesus paid the price and he's forgiven me of my sins. You've got eternal life. And this is the gospel. And it's very important that we understand this. And so as we go forward into these next couple of verses, we have to talk about what salvation means and that salvation has to do with either phase one, phase two, or phase three. Save from the penalty of sin, save from the power of sin, save from the presence of sin. When Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Is that phase one? Is that phase two? Is that phase three? It's phase two. Working out, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is the one who does that when we walk by the Spirit. So that's what we're going to get to next week. But I felt it very important to uh, talk about this. We have to understand what salvation means. We have to understand what the gospel of grace is all about. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these things. And we pray for these men that are deceived, that have this uh, narrow view of salvation that is, that is just not biblically accurate. Pray that you would open their eyes and Father, we pray for them, their brothers in Christ, their friends, and we just pray that this would not continue to be such, such a divisive thing, but that the gospel is that which we will divide over, and we need to stand for the truth. So, Father, we thank you for your grace, for the goodness, for the, all of the different facets to our Savior's work on the cross to completely, totally deal with the sin problem. In every way, then that we have a salvation that is not dependent upon us, but totally dependent upon your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.